Hello, I'm Jeff Johnston. Welcome to the Living Undeterred podcast. Today we have an exciting guest. Uh, I'm reciprocating the offer. I was on her show a couple months ago, and I'm excited to have Angela Kennecke here. And she is an award-winning journalist from Kello TV. Had to get that spelt the correction right there uh, in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And uh, unfortunately, her and I are members of a club that we did not ask to join, and a club that we cannot leave. And we're going to talk about uh, primarily her story today. Most of you following me know my story, and um, I like to turn the spotlight on other people. And uh, again, Angela, honored to have this opportunity to have you share your story, the work you're doing. I admire what you're doing. Early in my journey, you became a role model to me, mm-hmm. and I've, um, I've used your passion, your calling, and your um, purpose to... Um, emulate what I'm doing here. And, and I know there's another Angela and Jeff Johnston behind us and they need people to look up to as they deal with these things. So with that, thank you for being on the show. Uh, I have a lot of topics I want to navigate with you, but why don't you just kind of fill our listeners in a little bit about your background and, um, and we'll certainly talk about Emily. Well, thank you so much for those kind words, Jeff. I really appreciate that. Uh, I'm so glad I've had a chance to get to know you and to learn more about your mission as well. Yeah, I started Emily's Hope shortly after my 21-year-old daughter, Emily, died from fentanyl poisoning on May 16th of 2018. I, um, of course, was just devastated by grief. Uh, Emily was an incredible, incredible person, beautiful, talented, smart. Um, we had I tried for several years to get her help. I knew something was wrong. I didn't know the, to the extent of what she was doing. But we were three days away from an intervention when Emily took heroin that was laced with fentanyl and died. And my efforts since then have been to try Mm -hmm. to save as many lives as possible, but also to let other parents like you know that they're not alone. There are so many of us in these horrible ranks now. Uh, I really feel that, that we all need to band together to try to turn this tide of the overdose epidemic around. I think how I met you, uh, I was going through a very tough patch because uh, Seth died in 16. I think I reached out to you in 2000. And this was at the time before my wife passed away, but she was really in a, in a really bad place. And I just was looking out for help. And I went to the internet and I was looking around and I came across your story. And I was just so pulled in by how, um, and, I, and I know behind the scenes, you and I grieve our own way, but you look so strong and, and, and so passionate about what you're doing. And I got into your Emily's hope and I thought, wow, this is amazing what you're doing in, in the face of such adversity. So, I mean, you, you become kind of a, a role model to me and obviously for many other parents that are and not necessarily have a deceased child. I mean, you know, you and I went through, I went through about six years of what I call hell oh, uh, with seven. Seth's substance abuse and his addictions and his incarcerations and, it just, it was a long, torturous journey. And then um, to have it culminate in his death, first of all, wasn't shocking because he was kind of on that road. And again, Emily's story is so similar. And maybe that's what really it attracted me to, to what you were doing is that seems like both of them are very similar. We're very similar kids um, in, in what they were going through. Their ages were almost the same as well. I'm so sorry about Seth and about your wife as well. I'm, I'm so very sorry, Jeff. And 
I, I just wish none of us ever had to experience this. I agree. There are a lot of similarities and I find this to be true with so many young people that end up overdosing and often dying that they are similar in their backgrounds or in their personality makeup, even sometimes genetics, there are some similarities. I think at the core of addiction many times is a sensitivity. You know, we live in a really harsh world Mm -hmm. and it's very difficult for the sensitive person Mm -hmm. to, I know Emily was sensitive and she cared deeply about other people. And I think, Drugs are a way to escape from the harshness of reality, right? So I think that's a part of it. I really do. But thank you for saying I have courage. I've seen her artwork. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, But thank you for saying- Yeah, go ahead. Thank you for saying I have courage because people used to, especially in the beginning, people would say, oh, you're so strong. Oh, I don't know how you do that. And I was just having a conversation. I spoke to a school and a community just last night I was having this conversation with somebody mm-hmm. who also lost a child and they said, oh, I've tried to speak about it, but when I get up you know, in front of an audience, it's just too hard. And I am re-traumatized. Mm-hmm. I, I realize that every time I speak about it. But what I say is that all reporters right. have PTSD because I've been a journalist or TV reporter for mm-hmm. more than 30 years. So I've covered all of these horrible events. I've covered drownings and deaths and accidents. And and then you have to go on television and talk right. about it like you're not affected, like you're right. not a human being. And so I always say that was training for me right. to be able to do what I'm doing now. Yeah. And you think about first responders and people that are, that are, you know, in the trenches like that, police officers that, you know, mm-hmm. see just horrific things. You have to think that they have PTSD as well. Um, you know, uh, and maybe not diagnosed, but they certainly have issues with coping with, with, trauma and things like that. But, you know, going back to, um, to Emily, I'm just amazed at her artwork. And I was on your site this morning and looking at some of the artwork and I'm like, holy cow, she, what a talent did you talk about a sensitive person? I mean, artwork is, uh, is a, is a picture of the soul, you know, I mean, and sometimes people that are really struggling with themselves, they just exude that into their artwork, you know, and I could see just her speaking with that paintbrush. And I just want to tell you, she, her artwork is absolutely amazing. Well, thank, thank you. I think so too. Uh, surrealism is really her style. Yeah. Uh, I saw a lot of that. T- I kind of uh, wrote some of that off to teenage angst, mm-hmm. you know, but really um, it carried on until she was a young adult and but she, she was very talented that, I mean, I consider myself a creative person, but I'm not an artist. Yeah. Um, I don't know where she got that incredible talent, but I'm so blessed to have 29 of her paintings and several hmm. pieces of pottery and other objects that she made and are painted. And we use that now to raise funds. We, we use her art, you know, in our products, we use her art for our art shows that we put on to raise funds for our organization, for our mission. So I'm so grateful that, that I have that piece of her left. So I ask you a question that I get parents ask me a lot and it's from parents that have lost children and it's from parents that haven't, but would you do anything differently? You know, I, I, I get, I understand that question and I hear that question a lot. I think, when you know better, you do better, right? It's a cliche, mm-hmm. but it's true. And 
early on when uh, this all started with Emily, I did the tough love stuff, you know, that people told me to do that counselors told me to do, and that didn't work at all. And so it became evident to me after a while that if I approached her from a standpoint of love, that was so much more effective than like getting angry and then she'd disappear out of my life for a week, you know, that kind of thing. Or it just really didn't, it didn't work. It didn't do any good. So I'm glad I learned that while she was still alive. I wish overall there were more resources for parents to better navigate when your child starts acting out and doing things that are unhealthy for them right. or starts behaving in ways that are sort of erratic and, and, and really being out of control. I wish there were better options or answers rather than maybe calling in juvenile justice system, which I yeah. tried. I mean, there are lots of things... I tried that didn't work, but Mm -hmm. in terms of it toward the end, I just wish I hadn't waited to do the intervention. Mm. I wish I had, we weren't waiting until Saturday. We had met with the interventionist. We were writing our letters. I say there's no time to wait. Mm -hmm. I didn't know she was using heroin. I thought it was pills and Xanax. Yeah. But that would be looking back. My advice is, there is no rock bottom. Rock bottom is death. Absolutely. And so if you have a loved one who is struggling, you must act now. And then ultimately, all you can do is all you can do. You mm-hmm. cannot control another human being. We are not puppet masters of our children. Mm-hmm. So we can do our best, but we can't always get the outcome that we want. Do you do you know how long she had been using heroin? I don't. I do not know. I, I've gone back and tried to piece it together. I think maybe a year, maybe two years, but I don't really know. Um, I tried to piece it together by when her looks started to change dramatically or when she started missing more family events. Um, But she was never honest with me about that. And that was something that we found out after her death. And then I said to the police detective, you know, because you feel so dumb as a parent, like I should have known. Um, But I said to the police detective, I didn't know. And the police detective said, Parents are always the last to know. Yeah, we speculate Seth's heroin use may have been a week, two weeks, because he had he had been in prison. So we know he wasn't using heroin oh, there. Right. At least at least we're fairly sure he wasn't. And when he got out, he was doing really good and was working and but rumor has it he met a girl and she was into heroin and that's where we think he got kind of pulled back in. But the fact that you know, the, the rates of people that when they were released, and that's a whole nother topic you and I could talk for hours on that is how we treat, you know, people to come out of the prison system and the jail system is we just kind of throw them to the wolves. And it's pretty clear that, 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 that the death rates for people that get released from prison are, are too high. Um, and it seems like Seth just didn't know where to go. Um, and I couldn't let him live in the house. And people always ask me, you know, well, why was he up in Waterloo working up there? And I said, well, I kicked him out of my house so many times just because he was in prison. I I didn't think that was going to do much. So I don't regret that. My only regret, Angela, is that I didn't really understand what Adderall was, that that's, that's the one thing I got to take to my grave because he was given Stratera in fifth grade, which is just insane. If you think we're giving pills to fifth graders, I mean, what fifth grade especially a boy isn't hyper and intense and excited about life. I mean, it's just, it's insane that we do this to kids. 
And then he was given Adderall and I just was busy being a dad and being a husband and coaching and running my financial services practice. And I just said, you know what? It's coming from a doctor. It's, it's gotta be right. You know? And I think Seth always looked at Adderall as a curse for him and, and, um, that this pill was killing something that he shouldn't be, you know, like he was going to turn into a, a monster at midnight or something. And I, he just never accepted Adderall. I mean, accepted his um, attention deficit as anything other than something bad. And that's that's a stigma I'm really trying to change out there with parents. When someone tells you your kid's hyper, you know, I'd rather have a kid that's got too much energy than not enough. Well, that's a very slippery slope and a very complicated issue. Yep, it is. Uh, some yep. kids may need that. I mean, if they're bouncing off the walls, if they can sit in school, but... We as parents do rely on psychiatrists, right. you know, to let us know right. what is best. And and our kids over-medicated, well, certainly could be. I mean, obviously, we've seen the huge increase mm -hmm. in kids being prescribed medication. I don't know. That is a tough mm -hmm. thing. That is a tough, tough thing because I, I, dealing with I a hyperactive- I think of it as a like a spectrum, yeah, a spectrum, Angela, like autism. It's like, you know, sure. you're right. The, the Adderall, the, the meds we give to kids that are nines and tens on that on that, um, attention deficit spectrum. But, you know, Seth wasn't, I mean, Seth was, I'm probably more hyper than he, he was, and I never have taken anything. And that, that's the only regret I have in this whole process is I, and, and the outcome probably was still determined the road he was on all the stuff he was doing. You know, I think, I think death was just, was on his plate. I mean, it was coming. And, um, I told him in, in the book I write about, when he, when he did cocaine, when I found out he did coke, I said, you, you know, you, you're, on, you're either going to be in jail or you're going to be dead. And that's, you know, famous last words, I guess, you know, because he was both. But, but there's so well, many Emilys and Seths out there and there's so right. many parents like us that are just trying to figure out how we can, how we can stop this, I guess, at least get the numbers to start going in the, in the other direction. Yeah, I, I think the more parents speak up, the more outrage we have, the more likely we are mm -hmm. to facilitate change. What do you think about the new paradigm with kids dying now that aren't addicts? They're not the substance abusers. These are the, the Percocets. And I had um, Amanda Faith on, uh, and you should probably talk to her sometime. She's amazing. She was actually was on the Dr. Phil show, I think, two three weeks ago. Um, but she lost her son, I think 14 years old to Percocet purchased on Snapchat that had fentanyl in it. And on the Dr. Phil show, I think, uh, some DEA guy said at any given time, and this is just terrifying. If you have young kids at any given time, there's 80 to 90,000 drug dealers on Snapchat trying to sell drugs uh -huh. to our kids. I, yeah, I don't doubt. And that's it. a yeah. new paradigm. Yeah. When Seth was alive, you know, back in 16, that, that, you know, Snapchat wasn't even a big thing. And so drugs were still primarily being sold in the back alleys and in warehouses and things like that. But today it's, it's right in front of us at our parents' house on our kids' computers, on their phones. And that's the new shift. That's kind of the new emphasis that, you know, as you and I kind of evolve on this journey of trying to help people make better choices and to, and to get some of these issues resolved, we need to shift our attention as well because kids are dying in a different way now. Uh, I'm sorry, the same way, but for um, 
different reasons, I guess, you know, they're, they're not being pulled into it because they're substance abusers. And there is some effort right now to um, force social media companies to get them all on board to mm-hmm. have them allow parents to better monitor what their kids are doing on social mm-hmm. media, because you're right. These pills are 99% of the time. These counterfeit fake pills are laced with fentanyl. You know, all the dealer needs is a pill mm-hmm. press and they're getting to kids and people. That's the one thing since kids have many kids have been medicated since a young age and all of us are comfortable mm-hmm. taking a pill, right? We may not all be comfortable mm-hmm. smoking heroin, but taking a pill, we take mm-hmm. vitamins, we take medication from doctors, we take pills all the time. And so I think that right. people who are taking these pills believe they're legitimate. And certainly a kid is not going to know, a 14, 15, 16-year-old kid. And these pills are just delivered to their door, like as if you ordered food online. And yeah, I'm talking to kids every day about this, and I'm letting them know. We have a couple of young men in my hometown that weren't regular users. You don't have to be a regular user to experiment or to try a pill once and die on the first try. And we've got a couple of these guys, Mm -hmm. they were in their twenties and they had done a night of drinking and decided to get a pill and they both died. Mm -hmm. And because it was laced with fentanyl, because they all are. And I just think our kids, first of all, parents have to better be able to better monitor social media and kids have to get the message. Mm -hmm. Never safe ever. Don't trust the drug dealer, right? Yeah, the national media now has this one pill kills uh, campaign going. Uh-huh. It should be one use kills. Yeah, because yeah, you're right. you know it doesn't have to be a pill. Sure. Uh, and that's again, I'm not trying to micromanage and nitpick. I think it's great that the government and these organizations are doing have something. Kind of stepped <laughs> yeah. <up. I> know, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. President Biden is like $43 billion now that they're putting into these things. So that kind of segues into another issue I want to talk to you about. Uh, Earlier this week, I had a great guest on my podcast, Michael Brown, and he's from, uh, I think the DC area, but he was a a DE agent for 32 years. He actually lived in Miramar and he's, he's very in the trenches with the drug wars. And now he's retired and he works for an organization called Regaku, I think, and they sell a laser machine that can test uh, fentanyl, things like that, that is so much better than fentanyl test strips. But he's convinced, and, and I want your thoughts on this, that in five years, we're going to have harm reduction sites in every city in the United States, every big city. He's convinced that that's where things are heading. And we talked, we had a really good conversation on the pushback, on the people that are thinking that just supports drug use, uh, whereas you and I all Seth and Emily may have needed was one more day to live. And that's all we're asking for, you know, you know, from a harm reductionist standpoint, what's your thoughts on, on that, I guess. So I think we must have harm reduction. We must offer, you know, fentanyl testing strips or whatever the technology, new technology is that you were um, talking about there. And also um, Narcan should be available everywhere. I feel like everybody should just carry it with them with the number of people overdosing and dying. I have it. Uh, yeah. And, and, and while, um, I say that at the same time, this can't be the only thing that we do. So we have to have prevention. It has to start very, very young. And then we have to have access to treatment and adequate treatment within medical systems for people who are suffering from substance use disorder. So you can't just have the harm reduction 
and not have the other two things. It has to be fully comprehensive and right. fully funded. And our insurance companies cannot dictate how long someone can stay Absolutely. in treatment or when they can get out or what kind of aftercare they get. All of those things, um, we have to have the prevention, the treatment, the recovery. And yes, of course, when someone is in active addiction, we have to keep them alive till we can get them the proper help that they need. Now, that is not encouraging drug use. The prevention side of this should do nothing but discourage drug use. But once somebody is Absolutely. addicted, we don't we don't take medicine away from diabetics you know, because they have diabetes. Right. It's just it's right. it's insane to me that whole thinking. Um, we have to just have a comprehensive way of treating this entire epidemic. Well, there's my Narcan. So I have that awesome. with me at all times. And um, yeah, I heard about I, someone uh, dying I in traffic. I heard about someone dying in traffic. Um, they were slumped over the wheel, you know, and all these people had stopped and nobody had Narcan. And I think about that a lot. Like you, you could be in any situation and you could save a life. And that's so important. And then let's get them when they're in that hospital. Let's not let them walk out without getting right. them to resources and to help. I think you and I agree and everybody I've had on my podcast would agree in, in your podcast as well, that obviously something needs to be done differently than the current way we are doing things. And it could be even criminalization. It could be what we're doing at the borders. I mean, there's, there's, there's plenty of blame to go around where this, it could be just personal choices people make empowering people to make better decisions in their own lives and less reliant on, on the government, um, those type of things. But I think we're in agreement that, that there's, there's a lot of blame to go around, but there's also a lot of optimism. There's a lot of really good information out there. Um, you know, there's a lot of really smart minds that are now putting a lot of money, some, some private capital into, into organizations that, um, you know, are trying to get into psychedelic research, brainwave technology research, you know, all, all these ways that we can not just focus on specific like opioid overdose, but on the bigger issue. And I have to say it this way, the mental health epidemic we have, because Seth and Prudence for sure had mental health concerns, uh, probably before they became substance abusers. Um, they each had underlying issues that just never were addressed. Could have been in their childhood, could have been in their teenage years. I don't know, but there certainly were some things in there that, that I, I missed as a, as a husband and as a dad, that this mental health initiative that you and I are really on, um, you know, I think it's, it's unfortunately the timing couldn't be any better for these conversations. Well, and most people who use substances are self-medicating, right? And these mental health right. issues and addiction, they go hand in hand. There's not, they're usually co-occurring and, and, and that's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. There are very few people that turn to substances when they're perfectly happy and fine. I <laughs> just, you know, even if they don't yeah. realize there's an underlying issue, everyone who I have talked to who has, who is in recovery right now, um, and I'm thinking specifically of a couple of young men I spoke to who started with marijuana. And they said, mm -hmm. when I smoked marijuana, like the first time, maybe the second time, I found like, this is my answer. This is what I've been looking for all my life. And that's a message I passed mm -hmm. on to my other kids. You know, if you, if you drink alcohol or you try something and 
and, and it's not safe to try anything, especially illegal right now. I want to preface that, but, mm-hmm. it, it, and you think this is my answer. This is what I have been looking for my whole life. You better watch out because that's mm-hmm. a sign, you know, that you have that predisposition uh, for substance use disorder. Yeah, I think, you know, t- I think to really change the the narrative down the road, I mean, to get a 38-year-old housewife to stop drinking every night is very difficult to do. It's very difficult to do. But I think to get to kids in fourth, fifth, sixth grade before they have these problems, you know, yeah. I mean, we never had these talks with Seth ever. I mean, I, and I grew up in it with my dad being a doctor, um, you know, in a pretty leave it to beaver household, I would say my parents didn't drink. So it was, I didn't grow up in that environment, but I think I never really sat down with Seth at any age and said about anything about drugs. I just kind of assumed that either school was kind of doing that or, you know, maybe I'll just wait till, till I find a beer can and then I'll talk about it. It's like, and, and obviously I missed an opportunity or many opportunities where I could have had these really good father son conversations about drug use. And I just, I don't know. I just, I didn't do it. On the other hand, I had a lot of conversations with Emily about drugs. Uh, One of the things that stands out to me is my television station. We did a special on meth back when Emily was about in third grade. And it was, it just told the real life stories of what happened when people used meth, how difficult it was to get off of meth. We showed the before and after pictures that you've seen of meth users And I Mm -hmm. had her sit down and watch that. And it made such a big impression on her. She was always anti-meth. She never used meth. She looked down on meth users. But then I realized she didn't get the whole message. And I had talked before about how drugs destroy lives. And she had seen um, other examples of substance use disorder in our family. So she knew. I mean, she knew that. Mm-hmm. but maybe she was also fighting some genetics, but it was so interesting. And so when mm-hmm. I always thought about that, her being so anti-meth and the, how she was at a young age when she got that message about the truth about meth, uh, it was just a factual, factual report. And so that mm-hmm. inspired me to start our education curriculum. And we are actually, it's, and we're, we're going, you said fourth grade, we're going to start in kindergarten K through 12. Awesome. And we're actually piloting it in a third grade classroom next fall. And it's not scary. We're not trying to scare kids. It's, it's not dare. I mean, there were good elements in dare, but it wasn't studies show that wasn't effective. We are Mm -hmm. just going to teach kids about keeping their bodies and brains healthy. We're going to teach them about the brain. We're going to teach them about substance use disorder. We're going to tell them about fentanyl, you know, in age appropriate ways, kids need to know. And I think we just have to get to them younger because we have to prevent as many deaths as possible. And the only way to truly prevent or to turn the tide on this epidemic is to have kids never start using in the first place. You know, I I mean, I know we probably won't stop everybody, but I want to stop as many, many kids as possible. Yeah, I I love that approach. I really do. I I think that's... um... Certainly there's room in the curriculum at schools to start having these conversations. And parents ask me, you know, what age, and, and you're right. I said fifth, sixth, seventh grade, but any time that the child can comprehend, you know, risk right. reward type scenarios, 
you know, um, and I like to tell in my talks, I say, you know, choices precede consequences. So if you don't want to get arrested for drunk driving, just reverse and engineer back how a drunk driving happens. You know, you're pulled over or arrested. You got in the car, you got, you walked out of your house after you had 10 beers, you're at, you're watching a football game with your buddies, you know, and then go back to the moment that, that all these little tiny decisions you made, you could have got an Uber, you could have, you know, rode with somebody else. You could have rode, you know, you could have not even left your house if you were that drunk. And it isn't just one decision of getting behind the wheel that got you your drunk driving. It was the collective nature of maybe a hundred decisions, you know, that you made up to that point. And that's what I think with kids, I think if kids can see how small little decisions can lead to death in a hotel room, you know, um, not that dramatically, but, but, you know, metaphorically, I guess, to make it presented to a child, you know, I think that's a, that's a good angle to get at because kids don't understand statistics. Evidence has shown they don't do well when you try to scare them, you know, too much, you know, don't touch the stove, don't touch the stove. How does that work? So it's got it. You get, you can't talk dumb. You can't talk down to them. You know, it's, and that's why I think what you're doing in, in third grade is, is awesome. And I, I, I certainly want to support you here in Iowa as much as we can with getting you in schools around here as well. And we will hope to get to in schools nationwide, uh, you know, when it's all ready to go. We really are excited about that and think it's necessary. And, you know, people don't make the best judgments when there are decisions, when they're impaired as well. You know, you talk about right. rewinding. So you're not always going to make the best decisions once you've put a substance into your body as well. Yeah, it's, you know, again, I, most of the information I'm getting from people, uh, obviously it's passion driven, like you and me, you know, we, we have a passion, but one of my fears is Angela are these, these, um, these people that really are, they're, they're understandably upset. They've lost a child or a loved one to let's say specifically fentanyl. And so they're basically going at that a hundred miles an hour and drug dealers are, you know, they're corporations. These are multi-billion dollar entities. I think they're seeing very quickly that they need to start assuming fentanyl is going to be taken off the map. They're already way ahead of us. They're already designing. There's a new one on the market. I think it's ISO, ISO. Yeah. And, and so, and I was talking to Michael Brown about this and he's like, you know, I think that the problem is, is that we're just playing whack-a-mole and there's too many people focusing on one aspect of this. And, and I have a hard time disagreeing with that. Granted, I'd love to see fentanyl eradicated, but I know in my heart, there's another one behind it, another one behind it. So instead of going so focused on the supply, let's go back to third grade. Let's go back to prehabituation. Let's get to the kids and understand why they're doing these things in the first place. And I don't care what the drug cartels invent. We get a group of kids coming up in the next generation that are bulletproof. You know, they can handle these things. They can change all the names. They can do whatever they want. That that's, that's my concern with how society is going after this fentanyl issues. I just think they're, they're being distracted. Well, I mean, I think better controls, uh, trying to prevent any way we can from illegal substances coming in is a good idea. But at the same time, you're absolutely mm-hmm. right. There are already several different analogs of fentanyl. And then the DEA can't keep up mm-hmm. with that, you know, so they're not even illegal until they make them illegal. And it's it's right. a complicated problem. So right. I really believe prevention is the answer because there's no easy solution. Mm-hmm. And drug dealers are in it for the money. It is all about the money 
money, money, money. So of course they're going to come up with another way. And, and fentanyl is needed in some medical situations in a medical setting. Mm -hmm. So we can't say no fentanyl ever to anyone. Um, but it's just, it's, that is a complicated issue along with how we treat addiction in the judicial system and in our prison systems that there's no easy solution or overnight answers. And, but I do agree. I think prevention is key. Yeah. So what's some of the other, what are some of the other projects that you're working on? You have Emily's hope. Um, obviously you're a massive advocate and you're going to be you know, involved in, in our tour coming up. Um, but what are some other things on the, on the, on the docket for you and, and what, what, what things are you trying to be involved with? Well, we're very passionate about awareness and education. So I go all over the country and speak to students and communities. Through Emily's story, I also educate them about the overdose epidemic and about fentanyl. And that is a big awareness, prevention, and reduction in stigma piece that we do. And we're involved in a lot of events. We're, a lot, we're involved in a harm reduction event coming up this month in my area. And we'll have Narcan training and things like that. And then mm, we great. also put people through treatment. So we have Emily's Hope Treatment Scholarships. And that's very rewarding because afterwards, a lot of these people talk to me and tell me their stories. And we've helped more than 150 people go through treatment. And now we're helping adolescents because the local treatment center in my area has added an eight-bed adolescent unit for addiction. And Emily's Hope pledged two hundred fifty thousand dollars for adults, and we've pledged a hundred thousand for. I saw that. That's awesome. Yeah. So that, and then we hold events throughout the. You know, we hold an art show, we hold a poker run, and we we do those kinds of things. But yeah, and we're we're super excited to be the host in South Dakota for the Living Undeterred tour. It's your first stop, right? It is. We have Des Moines. And then we have uh, your stop. And, and what's really awesome is when I asked you about this, I mean, there, there was like, you were like really all in from the get go. And which is awesome because, you know, we have a similar goal here and, and that it's multifaceted, you know, I mean, it's not just to take fentanyl off the streets. It's, it's really to make, make people make better choices in difficult situations. That's kind of how I like to say it. But you, you were all in and now the, the, the stop that's going to be in South Dakota looks so awesome. And I think the community involvement, I mean, in Chasing the Scream, Johan Harry wrote, writes that the opposite of addiction is connect, connection, connectivity. And there's a lot of truth to that because I think the stigma is the opposite of addiction is sobriety. The opposite, opposite of addiction is being clean. But I, I, I don't know if that's true. I like the way Johan Harry uh, framed that is that it's connection, it's human interaction, it's conversations like we're having, it's, it's men being able to cry and be vulnerable. It's, it's um, you know, adolescents uh, that are struggling with their sexuality, like my, my son, my youngest son, Roman, came out as, as gay uh, about a year and a half ago. Gay teens are five times more likely to commit to, to take their own lives. And, and not just that, imagine the, the drug use with, with gay teens that are holding this inside. So there's so many issues on the table that I think having an event in Sioux Falls, we can just talk about these things. And then we pack up, take the RV, and we have 60 of these events, Angela. Think about that. Wow. You've I got mean, 60 books so We have 60 now? of them, yeah. That's fantastic. Well, no, we will. We will. Oh. <laughs> we, have, we have 38 stops right now. Um, Great. but we're going to have that's, 60. That's wonderful. And you know, yours that's is, 
It is. And yours is one of 60. So think of the people that we're going to meet that this RV, we can turn the spotlight away from us and onto Emily's hope for a day, you know, and let the nation see what you're doing and then go to the next stop. And then when this is all over, try to put all this together, try, try to figure out like after the tour, what can we put together to benefit society with mental health, substance abuse, and addiction? And I don't really know what that is yet. And if I did know, I wouldn't be doing the tour. You know, part of this is being uh, willing to say, I don't know how to fix these issues. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm just a dad from Iowa. I Five years ago, I had no interest in any of this stuff. I was interested in building my investment company up and making more money. That was my goal. And then all of a sudden, boom, you know, life changes and purpose becomes passion when it gets personal. And that's where I think you and I both are. Um, and uh, anyway, so going back to your stop in South Dakota, I, I'm excited. I can't wait to meet. And you've got a great panel discussion lined up. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, maybe some of the people in South Dakota that are going to be involved, maybe take a minute and talk about their individual stories and, and maybe why this is going to be such an impactful stop for us. Right. Well, first of all, we're going to be holding it on uh, Augustana University's campus here in Sioux Falls. And I love that because we can get college students involved and we can get young people to hear the message. And then on the panel, we have Dr. Matt Stanley, who runs the Avera Addiction Care Center in Sioux Falls, and he is an addiction specialist in psychiatry. So very knowledgeable um, person, one of the most in our community. And then we have a mother who lost a son to overdose. We have... Mm a woman who is an addiction studies professor who also struggles with substance use disorder. And we have the police mm -hmm. chief because he's going to talk about the law enforcement angle of all of this. Awesome. And I don't think I left anybody out. If I did, I'll think of them in a minute. Um, but a lot of really and great you'll people. You'll be our who, moderator, I heard. So <laughs> Yeah. But a lot of really great people who have come alongside me to help me with my mission with Emily's Hope are all showing up for this. And uh, we just want to get the word out, you know, to the community and to others, other groups who would be interested in learning more and learning more about what you guys are doing with your tour too. Yeah. I think, you know, the glue that holds us together to me is vulnerability. And that's the the word that comes to oh. the surface all the time. Um, and if you think about uh, the, the kind of the beauty of vulnerability is us sharing stories and, and helping each other. Um, I, th I think that's going to be an important aspect of the tour. Um, what advice would you give a parent right now that sees their child on the same road that Emily and Seth are on? I would say take action. Do the, do the right thing. Do the next right thing. Continue. Don't ever give up. Uh, don't approach it with anger. Punishment doesn't really work. I mean, I even took a class at one point on uh, dealing with an oppositional defiant teenager. And I learned that my, my groundings were too long. Like you can only take away the phone for like 24 hours. Don't take away the phone for like three days yeah. or a week or whatever. 24 um, minutes now. <laughs> yeah. So I learned a lot over the course of that, but I, I do know that I did everything humanly possible with what I knew at the time to try to redirect my daughter's course. Now I wasn't able to do that. I often say it's just like a freight train. You're holding your arms up and you're trying to stop this freight train as a parent. And in my case, it just mm -hmm. ran me over. My friend Melissa compares it to a tornado, you know, being caught up in a tornado. Yeah. And then after 
her stepson died. She gets pushed out of the tornado and she's like, what happened? Um, it's very tough on parents and everyone is trying to look on. And that's what you talked about vulnerability. And if I could address that just for a moment, everybody on social media is trying to look like they have a perfect life, right? Look what I'm doing. Look how I look, look where I'm going, whatever it might be. And we're all guilty of that to some extent. And I'm in the public eye, you know? And so when I put myself out there and I told Emily's story, I knew that I was opening myself up and I did, I did get, I would have to say it was much better than I thought. People were much kinder, compassionate, comforting, understanding than I ever thought they would be. I would say about 98% support. I mean, people have come beside me. Being vulnerable has been amazing. I've had amazing results. But at the same time, I did have those people who to this day will tell me I'm a bad mother. My daughter was just a junkie. And because I'm in the public eye, I'm an easy target. I've told my story. That's low hanging fruit for people to pick off. But it doesn't yeah. mean that it doesn't hurt. And, you know, we that, that, criti- right. that criticism, those negative comments stand out in our mind. And some people will never be vulnerable because they feel that's too high of a price to pay. I will pay that price yeah. in order to save lives. I, I'm right behind you. I'm, I'm the same way. Um, the, the minimal pushback I've ever, I've ever received has mainly been hearsay. It's, no one's really had the courage to say it to my face. But it's been more that I'm profiting off the death of my son and my wife. And the irony is I've never made a freaking penny. I've put my nonprofits, all my money. I mean, we have like 10,000 in my nonprofit and I had to put money in so I could buy the RV that guess whose pocket that came out of mine. So it's like, I'm not doing this for the money. And, but I can't, there's certain people that just, you know, it's like you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. If you don't talk about it, then you, I run the risk of more people dying. I run the risk of, you know, um, my son actually dying because I feel in my heart, if I stop talking about my son and the wife, then they really do die. And in a way, Emily, Seth, right. and Prudence are still alive because we're continuing their legacy because they aren't here to do it for them. So we have to do it. But what I say to those people who think I'm profiting off this, go get a life. You know, I, 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 that that's not even anything that's remotely in my mind. Now, I also understand that I can't do this for 30 years and throw all my money into it every year without some point in time, either getting more money in my nonprofit or something. I mean, that's, that would be well, foolish takes, if I did it that. It all takes money. Everything takes money. Yeah, it does. It does. Mm-hmm. And money is often a you huge know. obstacle in all of this. Yeah. You said something about, you know, keeping Seth alive with the work that you Mm -hmm. do. And I would say that that is why I do what I do. Yes. To help other people, helping other people helps me hundred percent with my Mm -hmm. grief, puts purpose to my pain, Mm -hmm. um, turns my heartbreak into action. However you want to phrase that. But at the same time, you know, I am talking about my daughter. People are seeing her artwork. People are hearing her story and who she was, not just her story of addiction and how she died, but who she really was. And that makes her senseless death because it was senseless. It didn't need to happen. That makes her senseless death or put some sense and purpose to that, which is incredibly helpful Mm -hmm. for me and my entire family. My kids are involved in these volunteer efforts. They're involved in Emily's Hope, Emily's um, siblings. I think it helps them. I know it helps 
you know, her dad and her stepdad and all of us, it helps all of us deal with our grief and our loss to kind of keep that part of her alive. She's not here. And in a way, I feel like she's sort of with me all the time. She's certainly in my heart. Mm-hmm. But we are really trying to just memorialize her life in this way with 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 intention and with the purpose of helping others. Mm-hmm. Well, stories like yours have been a huge influence in my life. And I kind of think to myself about how amazing it's been on this journey to meet Steve Grant, who lost his only two boys, Chris and Kelly. I know Steve. To yeah. overdose. Yeah. Um, and then meet someone like you. And then Amanda Faith, whose son died with Percocet on, on Snapchat. And it's like, or I, I'm very active in uh, the parents that have lost children to suicide. Um, you know, Jennifer Tracy lost her husband and her daughter in a car wreck to a drunk driver. So I'm meeting all these people that have lost loved ones for different reasons, but the pain is still just as intense. But these people did something that a lot of people aren't doing, and that's they pivoted to something productive. And that I think is the moral, the story of all what you and I are, and all these other people are doing is that you made a really good point. And I'll, I'll end this with kind of this idea that I had someone one time say, you know, Jeff, when you're going around the country and you're preaching to people and I stopped him immediately and I said, well, you don't understand. This is about Jeff Johnston. I'm doing this to save my life. You know, I, I had a brush with my first episode of suicidal ideation over Christmas. I mean, just think about that. Since my son and my wife died, I've never even considered it. Well, I had a really big step. I, I fell off the perch over the holidays. And so the tour is about me. So I can keep meeting more people that are doing things bigger than I can ever imagine that keeps me alive. Cause like you said, I have too much to live for. I have two other boys. My dad's still here. Um, I have too many great people to meet. And if I don't take care of myself and part of me is being vulnerable and sharing my story, then I'm afraid that, uh, that those thoughts will come back and I don't ever want to go down those roads. That was too terrifying. Well, we all get thrown into the pit. It doesn't necessarily have to be losing a loved one. It can be. Uh, we all Correct. experience suffering in life. And I heard this somewhere a long time ago, and it really resonated with me, that we all get pushed into the pit and there are bouncers and splatterers in the world. And some of us, when we get pushed into the pit, we splatter on the bottom of that pit and we cannot get up, you know, get out of it, whether that be suicidal thoughts, self-destructive behavior, you know, wallowing right. in misery um, and negative thoughts. And and others bounce, right? They bounce out of that pit. Mm-hmm. They they bend mm-hmm. down in that pit, but they bounce out. And mm-hmm. I think that's what I want to be is a bouncer. I think that's what we all really want to be. And so how we do that, we may that we may find different ways to do that, but that is what you and I are trying to do. We are trying to bounce out of the pit that life that we never expected, but that life put us into. And that's, I think the most, the best thing you can do. Well, we are living undeterred, right? That's right. 
<laughs> that's 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 the beauty of all this. Well, listen, I it's been a great to have you on the show. Um, I, I'm going to see you shortly, and I'm, I'm excited to document the stop and promote that on social media and get more people to talk about these things. So the Emilys, the Seths, the Prudences, the Chris and Kellys, you know, um, we have less of those people. Uh, and um, I think I saw a stat the other day: 800 Americans a day die from suicide, alcohol abuse, and overdose right now. So think of the 800 families, 800 moms and dads, the brothers and sisters, the the the, the teammates, the the, the um, coworkers. I mean, the collateral damage on this epidemic is just it, it's unfathomable. I can't even wrap my hands around how many, and that's per day, 800 a day. So with that, Angela, keep doing what you're doing. Really admire what you um, have become. And any last parting words, or I guess maybe we can end it with how can people reach you if they want to hire you to speak. If they want to follow you on social media, what are, and I'm going to have all this as links on on the show. But if you want to throw out some uh, easy ways people can reach out to you, oh, that's great. Um, yes, they can reach. They can just go to emilyshope.foundation, and there are a lot of resources there. There's our story and what we do, and also how to contact me. But I'm also on Facebook, Angela Kennedy. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, all of it. So if you just search or you search Emily's Hope as well, has we have our own social media channels. So. Yeah, we'd love to hear from more people too. And I would suggest all my listeners and followers and watchers do your one good deed for the day. Go to Emily's Hope and donate. Um, oh, thank you. Even for if that. it's ten dollars, uh, it it all makes a difference. Um, we both run nonprofits. We know they live on fumes, and um, yeah. you know I have a, a pretty good people that follow me, and they're very gracious with their with their time and capital. So. I would just ask my my people to, to jump on your website, uh, Emily's Hope. I was on it this morning. It's a it's a beautifully designed website. I think you've um, you've really made Emily alive. I mean, the pictures you have on, on there are just um, they're awesome pictures. Um, well, but anyway, thanks that. a lot for your time. And um, yeah, and I'm so I'm so grateful ahead, for our partnership. No, I'm I'm just wanted to say I'm so grateful for our partnership. So thank you, thank you for reaching out to me and. Really looking forward to our joint event in May. Well, we're just getting started. So uh, again, thanks for being on the Living Undeterred podcast. And um, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, seeing you shortly.